0: Welcome to the Board Meets World podcast. Today's guest is Colin Clapham. Colin has the galaxy brain thing going on where he just can't help himself from thinking about data trends in sports and making models and going all the way in on things like that. Uh, Just like last time, he brought five topics and stats to the table, and I did my best to try and distill the gist of it into a lay explanation. We talked about computer pattern recognition in basketball, no hitters, Billy Bean in Oakland, marathon running, and injuries in high school sports versus pro sports. I had a blast and learned a ton, while Colin was really nice and made me think that I was doing a good job keeping up with him. Enjoy it. All right, I'm back with Colin for Stats, exclamation mark, volume two. Uh, first of all, congrats to Colin for for graduating from Boston University. So you know I have a master's in what you're talking about, which has to feel pretty cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of responsibility, but it uh, <laughs> feels good to be a, a real person again. With
0: great B2 power course. comes yeah, great responsibility.
1: Very true. You have mm-hmm. this,
0: this vicious mind that you now have to put to good use. Mm-hmm. Uh, the listeners can't tell, but Colin is wearing sunglasses because you haven't seen the sun in two years. <laughs>
1: it's very true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got to get the uh, got the tan again. Very pale, but uh, it's nice to see uh, nice to see the sun again.
0: Uh, tell everyone about your fun your fun Thursdays uh, as a stats graduate student. What what were your Thursday nights looking like?
1: Thursday was the last night of the week that I had class, um, so that was like the three day break in between you know when I had to go back to class again, so um drinks were had a lot um this so this is but where were they had all on campus oh i
0: i thought I thought this was the uh the night that you would become a recluse in your in your bed and, oh
1: yeah, and, no that definitely yeah my my ritual was walk home, stop at save more, laugh at the funny uh thing they had on the sign this is true. Get a six pack and uh crank out some stat.
0: Yeah, the the Medford uh, Save More, <laughs> the liquor store right by Collins Place, mm-hmm. has it's it should be like nationally recognized. They have yeah. just funny sayings. It's so
1: funny. The best one was like on in February. It was just like Valentine's Day, blah blah blah.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like the it's like the Woody Page chalkboard yeah, and around the yeah. horn just always yeah. says something. Um, so we're gonna talk about stats today. People people really like the the first podcast as a die. Um, it was a great exercise for me in condensing. Incredible amount of information into into bite-sized pieces, um, so we'll do that again. But my first statistical question for you is: is uh, can you help us figure out uh, the rate at which uh, Ferroseved was was traveling through Robinson Cano's system to <laughs> to dis- disguise his? Uh, yeah,
1: that might be more of a physics problem, so I uh, I'll need to go back to school for that. Um, but it's a shame with someone that with that much natural talent, you know. He may or may not have known that he was doing it, but yeah, it's uh, he was definitely uh, definitely juicing. So,
0: I think now that that steroids have been as entrenched in baseball as they have, it's time to memorialize it in its own thing. Like Cooperstown should have like like if there's a rough part of Cooperstown, there should be a a uh, a wing dedicated mm-hmm. to the best seasons of. Of juiced players and yeah. what that looked like.
1: Yeah, I mean it's crazy. I was I was watching a video um, about how what if Barry Bonds went up to bat for his best season without a bat, or if he just didn't swing at a pitch, and and how much did fear, you know, factor into? Uh, how he played and how mm-hmm. good of a player he was and the way that they calculated it they used all these like different probabilities of you know the pitches that he saw and, and all that and all the walks that he had and they basically changed every at-bat that wasn't a walk uh, into some outcome of either a walk or a strikeout and his on-base percentage in this season this hypothetical season where he didn't go yeah. up to bat with a bat his on-base percentage was 680 goodness so like, you know a guy who hit that many home runs gets better without even swinging a bat just because he struck so much fear into the hearts of pitchers like it's it's crazy regularly
0: the i mean throughout his his giant's tenure, he was getting walked at the bases loaded,
1: yeah. Yeah, or it, or he was the first person up, and they would walk him with with no one on, no it's, one out. It's
0: totally worth it. Yeah, totally worth it. It's insane. Um, yeah, it's it's too bad that, that baseball has lost that, and and I mean, for better or for worse, but mm-hmm. uh, it is definitely something something to to be remembered because yeah. it's not like it didn't happen. That it, was
1: it definitely doesn't happen as often. And my favorite part about that was while that year that he he broke the record for walks, Sports Center had this graphic where they were trying to compare the distance of. Um, the, the bridge in San Francisco and see how many times Bonds would have traveled across <laughs> it if you walked so that was that was a fun little graphic that they had I think
0: last time we talked you actually were not a fan of some some ESPN Chirons that come up so that was that was one of the more inventive ones
1: yeah uh, yeah they they take some liberties with, with certain things so
0: that was that was back when uh, when Pedro Gomez was, was like livi- living at, at uh, the, the San Francisco ballpark because mm-hmm. he was just getting interviewed there every day mm-hmm. um ESPN doesn't do that so much anymore. No. It was like Sal Palantonio and in, in Philadelphia talking about whatever Terrell Owens had for breakfast that yeah. morning. It was the uh, the things I remember most from childhood is Sports Center in the morning. Um, anyway, so the last time we did the pod, we talked about five different statistical topics. The uh, a couple of them have stood out in terms of just kind of playing them out through the rest of the season. Some of them were were kind of one one time topics, but the first one we talked about was the idea of Re twenty four. Um, which is a, an all-encompassing baseball statistic that that measures the uh a batter's pro- productivity based on situation and and basically the how often do they do um do a good thing at the plate to to really distill it down to that uh this year Aaron Judge is your your MLB leader so far in RE24 um and he's ahead of Manny Machado in in both the MLB and the AL despite Machado being the front runner for both home run or all three home runs average and RBIs. Do RE24 one, t- one more time for us? How is that possible that Aaron Judge could could be a superior hitter in this metric, but not uh but lagging behind Machado and all the other three?
1: Yeah, so uh RE24 again, each time you come up to plate, you could have a different number of scenarios. So it could be one person on, two people on, bases loaded. You know, it could be one person on first, second, or third. You could have a different combination of outs. So there's 24 different possible combinations. Um, So uh, Aaron Judge, I'm assuming the reason why his RA24 is higher is because the Yankees lineup is far superior to the Orioles lineup. Um, So when uh, Judge comes up to bat, there's probably a greater likelihood that there are more people on base, um, which means that there's more waiting to his Mm at-bats than Machado so Machado comes up to the plate and you know there's no one on and no one out and he hits a home run you know that's going to be one and and there's a greater likelihood that Machado comes up to the plate with no one on because the Orioles lineup this year isn't that great so Judge comes up to the plate, he's got people on maybe there's an out or two he knocks it out of the park because Yankee Stadium Uh, and you know he's getting all those points he's just you know capitalizing on that lineup protection you know and and if there's anyone who you know back to the bonds fear you know conversation if there's anyone in the mlb right now who you know would strike that same kind of fear you know i would have thought it would have been stanton behind judge this mm-hmm. year i mean stanton hasn't been doing that great um but judge is definitely up there i mean if you, even if you just look at him he's he's a beast like yeah he, he's terrifying so
0: so it's that idea of the, the... When Judge is coming to the plate, it's more often that there is a run to be had um, than there is when Machado's on the plate.
1: Yeah, and Judge is just capitalizing on that. And, you know, Machado, you know, could have a few more home runs, but, you know, all it takes is Judge to hit a grand slam and he. Already outdoes Machado's three solo home runs.
0: There you go. So. There you go. Um, very cool. Well, that that is something that I, I certainly have been paying a lot more attention to since our last time we spoke. Uh, the other one that, that I want to bring up, and we'll, we'll get we'll get another crack at Gabe later. Uh, but last time we we, uh, we it wasn't slander, but we, we came on here and, and trashed Gabe Kapler a little bit, or at least poked um, some holes in, in the the idea uh, that, that Gabe has for for this Philadelphia Phillies team as the manager that. Um, that basically, if, if you if you lean on your bullpen a little bit heavier, then you're going to have a little bit more control over um, over over your your get, getting the best arms and healthiest arms in front of batters throughout throughout entire game. Makes sense in in a small sample size, aka the first forty games of the season. Uh, but we're still skeptical as it's going to play out the rest of the season. However, Gabe Kapler, uh, the league average for innings pitched per start for a team is is around five and a half. Um, the Phillies are at 5.7, so up in the, the top half of the league for uh, for average innings per start that their starters pitch, and the team is also 24 and 16.
1: Any thoughts? <laughs> so when I came on here last month, we were two, three weeks into the season, um, and I threw a projection out there that uh, Phillies starters would throw around 850 innings and their bullpen would throw around 600 and at the time when I calculated that I was a little worried because we were only two or three weeks into the season and maybe you know they would of course correct it a little bit Arietta had only had one start at that point so I thought he would eat some innings what's crazy and I I will preface all this by saying I love Gabe Kapler he did a ton for the Red Sox um you know I, I I have you know, no problem with him as a player, and I think that he's done a good job in in Philadelphia. Remains to be seen if what he's doing is going to work. But what's crazy about this is I did projections again last night, and the bullpen is still on pace to throw 606 innings, and the starters are still on pace to throw around 850. Um, I know we'll get into this a little bit later, but. Of the five, there are five relievers on that staff that are projected to throw greater than 60 innings, and all of the guys who had ever broke 60 of those five had to throw less in the second half. Mm. So at the trade deadline, if the Phillies are still in it, I would expect them to be pretty active for a bullpen arm. I'm, I'm thinking that they're starting to look kind of like the Cubs... Even though they don't really have that one person, two people in the lineup that are like absolutely terrifying, like mm-hmm. a Rizzo Bryant combo, something like that.
0: So, sure. Um, so, so within this kind of, you know, how how long do you have your starters in there? Um, some teams are doing it by, in, in you know, out of intent. The the Kepler example being one of them, where where you don't want your starters overextended into a given game. Um, some teams are doing it out of out of necessity, I the Seattle Mariners who just don't have the arms to go deep into the sixth and seventh innings. Uh, but there seems to kind of be, you know you're looking for like what are the best teams doing? and I think this is just baseball and that um, the the Yankees are below league average in this metric of, of start of innings per start. Uh, Boston and Houston, Houston is second in the league, Boston's above above league average as well. So there doesn't seem to be really a correlation between um, at least through this point of the season, between how off, how deep your starters are going to games and wins, um, is that me looking at a small sample, or is that something that, that we can that uh, can chalk up to? There's multiple ways to skin a cat.
1: Yeah, it's uh, most statisticians will in this matter will fall back on the small sample size. I mean, you remember in Moneyball, they like Brad Pitt's character Billy Bean, obviously would always argue that the sample size was too small and you know he's arguing with the manager about how it was only april it was only may and they hadn't used their players enough all that um you know it'll be interesting to see how it plays out over the course of the season you can't predict if you know well you sometimes you can predict if injuries are going to happen from overuse but there are freak accidents um you know some guy plays with his drone and he cuts his finger and he can't pitch like you can't really predict things like that um so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out over the season, especially if you know some teams start to tank and they just jump ship, sell off, and try to rebuild. Um, you have the Orioles in an interesting place where you know they have Machado as a piece. They might you know try to dump some other guys. The Brewers might not be doing as well as they thought they were going to do, so they might dump their. Uh, they have a stud closer on their staff, so it'll be interesting to see how things are shuffled by the midseason.
0: Yeah, definitely, and and you know, it's it's just interesting that um, you know, like like we said over over the course of a season, there's there's the, over the course of so many seasons in baseball, um, you know, these different strategies are are very interesting, and and uh, if nothing else, give give us give us uh samples that can be used for for future strategy and in, in how teams are constructed so it's very interesting to see what Kaplan's is trying to do um in philly let's talk about this week's five things that we have and, and you sent me your five things and that'll be the five things that we talk about um you sent me your your notes, and obviously you have kind of a shorthand for for how you um, you put things across. However, I, I I gathered as much as I could from it. So what we'll do is uh we'll we'll talk about the topic. We'll introduce the topic. I will do my best uh, job to basically sum everything Colin sent me in a tweet or in a in a small uh, layman's terms type type thing, and then Colin will will be really nice and he'll say. Yeah, kinda, <laughs> and then uh, and then break it break it down a little more thoroughly, and then we'll talk about applications and stuff. Um, the first one being this idea of pattern recognition in in uh, in, in computers and how computers can can recognize um, via what on a screen the important people and and, and pieces of a of a moving video. Essentially, um, this has applications that go far beyond sports. But talking about the sports angle on this. There was a Google. This is the late, late attempt here. There was a Google study that led to computers being able to identify key actors in a screen and minor actors in a screen, including data about their proximity to everything. Um, how'd I do?
1: Good. Yeah. No, that's that's really good. Right. Um, and I think that the application we were going to talk about was uh, the NBA, which mm-hmm. is the, the example that uh, was was in the article. So essentially, what these computers do is you know you you look at a frame from TV, like, you hit pause, you you see this frame, and and what these computers can do is they can say, I'm going to draw a box around this player, this player, that player is setting a pick, that player is dribbling the ball, that player is running down the court, and it's basically able to uh, pick out what each person's doing. And what's really cool about this is, you know, think about Snapchat, for example, if you use a filter, like the dog filter, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you've ever wondered how snapchat or your phone knows where to place the ears and the nose and everything um basically picture uh you take the picture uh think of it like this uh that image is made up of however many pixels so every little dot and each of those dots has a color associated with it and each of those colors has a number associated mm-hmm. so let's say you move from the is it outside
0: are we talking like a hex hex code at this exactly point? Okay.
1: exactly yeah so you move from the outside of the image inward and as soon as, you know, the outside of the frame, like let's say you're, it's pointed towards the sky, and you, it's blue, 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 and then it hits your face, mm-hmm. and maybe it registers tan, and that number changes drastically. That's kind of how Snapchat figures out where to place those certain things. Interesting. So, same thing can be applied to basketball. So, they have cameras in all the stadiums now where uh, it's pointed at the court. and this, you know, the Sport VU cameras? Yeah, yep. exactly. So it's, it sees court, 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 court. There's a player. Court, court, court. Well, there's the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, it can see and pick up all these people. Now, sometimes certain things are picked up that you don't want to get picked up. So, for instance, you could pick up the logo in the mm-hmm. middle of the court, and that can kind of disrupt some of what it's looking at. Um, but what's really cool about this is they, have, they basically have cameras that are tracking almost every angle. Um, and the one that... Is pointed directly downward. Can see all the players where they are on the court. You know who's on what team and where the ball is. And if you were to see all five of your players and you were to draw a line around the perimeter, so you make this weird like polygon type mm-hmm. shape,
0: the the perimeter of the shape that the players draw essentially.
1: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. You can compare that to the defense. Now. Last time when I was on here, I talked a little bit about hit probability, Mm -hmm. and there were a lot of things that went into the probability of getting a hit based on the batter's attributes and the defender's attributes and the weather and all these other things. What this pattern recognition technology has the capability to do is say, all right, if you run this play, like if these players run down the court in this fashion, they pass the ball to this person, pass the ball to that person by this defender... You have X probability of successfully completing a pass, mm-hmm. successfully completing a pick, or successfully making a basket. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you can do on every single play is you can say, all right, generate the play that has the highest probability of making a basket. The difficult part is the computing power it takes to do that is too great to do on every single play. Mm-hmm. So, what they do is they kind of generalize and they say, "All right, I know this team runs these two different types of zone defenses and this type of man to man defense. Mm-hmm. so pick the plays that are you know most likely to uh, be successful, and I'll just call them on the fly." So if you had a team of like robots or something like that and they were programmed to look at every single possibility, that would be capable of you know going on the fly with every play Mm -hmm. Um, but you hypothetically in down the line would have the ability for every single play to say if you pass the ball from this person to this person to that person in this fashion you have a 92 percent chance of making the basket versus if you set a pick and then try to dribble by you only have a 72 percent chance
0: got it and so that that would I mean, the, the easy jump for for teams to make is especially in the NBA, the, the idea of of investing into an analytics an analytics team that can look at those types of things and have that shape play design from coaches and how, how your team plays stylistically um, looking for in, when we're looking at this defensive look that we can simulate um, simulate on on whether it's sport view or with this with this different software that we're talking about when you're looking at that look, the best thing to do here is to make that pass into the corner mm-hmm. instead of the uh, instead of the pick from, from, from this angle here.
1: Yep. Okay. Yeah. And the important thing to keep in mind is each player has its own set of attributes. So, you know, if you the computer won't tell you make this bounce pass past this defender if the defender has like a ten foot wingspan. Like he's gonna he's gonna smack the ball right out of the way. So it's important to have as much information as possible.
0: So so can this also play with there's two op there's two options here. there's player a is is taking a pick and he's driving to the basket uh, and we know that that any drive is a certain expected value, but this player actually brings that expected value up mm-hmm. versus he could he could or or the, or the computer could say, uh, let's throw it into the corner, that shot has a, has a higher expected value, but the player shooting that would actually bring that down. Would it be able to account for that?
1: Yeah, exactly. So you would take into account the like, shooting percentage, you know, if the player is a better passer than, you know, another player, mm-hmm. if they're faster, and that's kind of where you marry all of those, you know, standard stats, like points and shooting percentage and things like that with, like, biometric data. Right. So, like... How fast is my forty-yard dash? How how tall am I? What's my wingspan? Yeah, you know how fast are my reflexes?
0: So so just thinking this through, I mean the, the amount of variables in my head right now. Yeah, for for location on the core, one corner is different than another corner. Mm-hmm. The hand that's that's being used to make a pass um, to shoot with the 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 point in the game that this is a first yeah. quarter shot is not the same as a fourth quarter shot on a body. This is just massive. So how would you how would you even attempt to to distill something like this? The the
1: biggest problem is computing power. Uh Like I said, so um, you know, being able to do that on every single play probably isn't a possibility unless you were to invest like millions and millions of dollars into this. Welcome
0: gambling to sports. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs)
1: Um, But yeah, no, I, I think that that's the problem that. A lot of organizations have, once they start bringing more and more data in, they realize, hey, I could find the best play possible every single time my team goes down the court. And then they're like, oh, shoot, well, I don't have the capability to do that. But it would be really nice to have that.
0: Yeah, I I can imagine plenty of teams in the league are sitting on a solution without the ability to... Turn it around and implement it yeah. uh, for exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. To me, I think that this this particular movement um, against against the defense is especially valuable. It, it, it works in basketball, but there's a lot of 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 uh, kind of real-time things that happen in basketball in terms of the offense to defense switches and and when does a play start and shot clock and things like that uh i think football would be is enormously valuable or like would benefit from this Mm -hmm. enormously because the plays are set um from from the start everyone starts at a set position um against basically a lot of the times kind of kind of fixed defenses um that that are that aren't you know you can't really move a move a defensive player off like you can in basketball so i think that football would really benefit from this but i don't i don't necessarily uh at least from from what i hear and read see that this type of thing is being used as much in football circles as it is in basketball circles
1: no and and this kind of uh thinking. So for the more technical crowd, um, this kind of stems from an idea in healthcare. It's called Bayesian Adaptive Trials Mm -hmm. if anyone wants to look up. And Barry Consulting is the company that kind of pioneered this. Um, Basically what you do is you, you, you come up with a trial. So like in this case the play you're running would be the trial and you just keep looping and looping and looping and you get to change your parameters on the fly. So like we said, you know, what player has the ball, what scenario in, first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, and you keep looping until you hit some stopping term. And usually that stopping term is either uh, computing power met or play is over. Mm-hmm. So um, that's kind of where this all started. Um, it's used probably the most in basketball. Baseball really doesn't have too much of a place yeah. for it. Um, but football definitely It would be something that would be – Baseball, I'm
0: sure it could inform uh, defensive positioning for for a given batter.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and Gabe Kapler is one of those guys who, you know, uses defensive positioning the most, really. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, out of anyone that I I know as a manager, um, I know that um, Aaron Boone is another guy who, kind of buys into that
0: yeah yeah the idea of shifting and, and getting players in position where mm-hmm. statistically um they are they are most likely to make it out uh fascinating stuff and it's something that that uh you know this the sport view idea has been around in the last seven eight years or so uh but how it has been used and and how much is it being used in the background is, is i think um kind of the the black box for for fans at least we uh, we just saw a no hitter. It was on a couple podcasts ago that I talked to my friend Phil about it. Um, James Paxton threw a no hitter in in Toronto, um, and that got you thinking, of course, as uh, as kind of the way your brain works to think about who who's the next candidate for for getting a no hitter and 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 um, and kind of the anatomy of of what a no hitter looks like. So, lay definition. Uh, or lay lay example of of Collins Collins work here the anatomy of a no hitter uh consists of, of producing short at bats both pitch count short so not very many pitches within the bat and also actual time of the at bat itself so very quick um both via pitches and then also via speed high strike percentage is very important and it's especially valuable for a pitcher uh, to pitch much faster than the rest of his team does. And so what we, what we mean by that is some p- pitchers in between pitches like to you know, shrug their shoulders a couple times, take a little bit more time in between pitches. It's better if a pitcher um, is has a much faster pace than the rest of his team does, and if that pitcher has been pitching faster this season than they have been pitching in prior seasons. How'd I do?
1: Like that was perfect. All right. Yeah.
0: This was this is a really fun one because it made a ton of sense to me right off the bat in mm-hmm. term and just 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 intuitively that that's kind of this idea of of a, of a no hitter over twenty seven outs is kind of a deceptive act to do it and so so that makes total sense as to why that's the case.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I actually I had a lot of fun doing this one, um, uh, and I, I was really trying to rack my brain around what like how do I know a no hitter is coming because in April. You know, we saw a historic number of near no hitters Mm -hmm. and it felt like almost every night I was getting an alert that, you know, you know, Johnny, what's his name is throwing a no hitter. Some guy that I'd never heard of is in the eighth inning and he hasn't given up a hit yet. Bartolo Colon had a no hitter going into the or perfect game, I think, going into the eighth one night. Right. Um, So I was really trying to wrap my brain around. All right. Like, is it the team they're facing? Is it, you know, strikeout versus fly ball versus a ground ball pitcher? What's going on? Um, I looked at a bunch of different things like the teams that had been no-hit over the past 10 years not really any pattern there you know I looked at you know strikeouts ground ball pitchers there wasn't really that much of a you know uh, that much of a thing so I I stumbled on this graph um, and uh, basically it was showing uh, the number of no-hitters from 1876 to now uh, and I noticed that there are all these ebbs and flows, and I wanted to know, all right, why are there, is there such a high peak, and then all of a sudden it just drops off for a couple of years, and then it slowly rises again until it gets to a plateau, sits for a while, and then drops again. Uh, and what I found was uh, was interesting was, starting in the 70s, there's this plateau, you know, you got like Koufax and Nolan Ryan and, and just really dominant pitchers to, guys who were tear through lineups and then all of a sudden right around 1970 to 1975 there's this steep drop and and all of a sudden nothing and then all like in the 90s no hitters start to become a little more prevalent um, and then steep drop again and you know you're in the 2000s and it's the home run race and it's Sosa and Maguire and, mm-hmm. and Bonds and you know and then there's this lull again in, in you know the mid 2000s to 2010 steep sh- Steep uh, steep rise. So, the numbers I have from 2010 to 2017, no headers by year. So, starting in 2010, 6, 3, 7, 3, 5, 7. And then in 2016, there was 1. And in 2017, there was 1. So...
0: And then through this point of the season already, there's been three. In
1: 2018, there's been three in a month and a half. Mm-hmm. So something happened between 2015 to 2016. 2015, there were seven. 2016 and 2017, there was one each each year. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I realized was all of those you know peaks and valleys occurred around major rule changes. So in 1970, you know, it's, I think it was 73 actually, um, DH was implemented. There you go. And the mound was lowered. So pitchers 15%. had to, you know, kind of adapt to that. And, you know, it took them a few years to, to adapt to it, but then you have Nolan Ryan, who throws like six no-hitters um, in the late 70s. You know, and then no-hitters are, you know, fairly common, but then you have the 90s and height of the steroid era, mm-hmm. and you've got all these big home run hitters. And then all of a sudden in the 2000s, Bud Selig starts to crack down on steroids. So then no-hitters become more popular. So then what I found was in 2015 to 2016, the big rule change was the implementation of the pitch clock. Time between pitches, even though it's not, you know, enforced heavily, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, the umpire has the ability to either, you know, call a a ball or, you know, penalize the pitcher. Right. Um, So these guys were kind of getting rushed a little bit. Because
0: um, so, you've been pitching your whole life without a clock, and now all yep. of a sudden you get to the highest level of baseball—a very small fraction of probably your overall baseball career as a pitcher—and now the, there's this clock behind you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, and and it's it's some guys might feel rushed, and you know there might be a miscommunication between the pitcher and the catcher. Um, so uh, some of the interesting things I, things I saw. Um, so there was a guy last year, April fifteenth, twenty seventeen. Through five innings of no-hit ball. But it took him 98 pitches, and he only threw 53 for strikes. Um, and what I looked at was uh, on fan graphs, they have a, a stat called pace, which is basically the average time you take between pitches. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to see was who are guys that are ranked in the top 50 who, in terms of efficiency. So they, they have the shortest amount of time between pitches. And Anyone ranked higher than 50, I considered them not ranked. Um, So that guy last year, April 15th, who threw that five innings of no-hit ball was Sean Manea.
0: Who threw a no-hitter
1: the following season. A no-hitter April 21st this year. Um, And it was much more efficient. He threw 108 pitches, 75 for strikes. Sean Manea was not ranked in pace last year. Um, This year, he's 32nd. Um, So then, you know, I got to thinking, like, all right, like how did some of the guys who threw no headers in the past few years You know, where do they compare? So, in 2016, the only no-hitter that was thrown was by Jake Arrieta. Jake Arrieta was not ranked. In 2017, the only no-hitter that was thrown was Edison Volquez. He was also not ranked. But, for each of those guys, they were on teams where the pitchers were much more efficient in terms of the time between pitches. So, for Arrieta on the Cubs, his team was 7th. And for Volquez on the Diamondbacks at the time... His team was fourth. Mm -hmm. So even though those guys themselves weren't very efficient pitchers, they were surrounded, they were in an environment that kind of, you know, adapted to the rule changes better than other teams. So Manea this year, what's really interesting is he's 32nd, but his team is 28th. Mm -hmm. The Dodgers also threw a no-hitter this year. Walker Buehler started, and then he threw six innings of no-hit ball, and then his relievers finished it up. But the team is 25th. And then Paxton uh, this year also if he threw the last no-hitter. Um, the Mariners are ninth, but Paxton is the sixth-fastest pitcher in terms of time between pitches. Mm-hmm. So I get the, it looks like the trend is guys who may not be on teams, like you said, that are very efficient between pitches, but it's guys who have kind of adapted to these rule changes better than others. So right. oh, go ahead.
0: Yeah so so this this is profoundly interesting because I mean it, it makes sense the first guy I thought of when we talk about the idea of pace and how that how that would impact not we're not talking about the best pitchers in baseball it's just it's the the quickest workers in theory um and the guy that comes to mind is Mark Burley who was who was like famously fast and this is something that i mean just just watching him back in the day you could tell i mean he, he, he didn't have a round it was it was pitch signal pitch yeah. like it was it was just back and forth um burley threw a no hitter in 2007 was kind of a part of his effectiveness as a, as a pitcher um, throughout his career and so it makes sense my question to you is first of all applications uh, with with the injection of, of legalized gambling, got <laughs> to think that, that the ability to spot these um, for prop bets and things like that is is something that, that people are going to be interested in because of the because of the payout, you can throw out a very small amount of money uh, and do it often and get a huge ROI if you yeah. if you if you jump a no hitter. Also, is there a de- If is there a difference? Um, talking about the the. The difference between um, the the starter themselves and then the pace of the of the rest of the starters. So so even James Paxton versus uh, say the the number five and number four starters for for the Mariners, or I guess it would be number one and number five starters for the Mariners that pitched before him, and the difference between theirs when we're talking about in the context of a series, in a three game series, if you pitch against uh, a very league average pace guy and a below league average pace guy and then paxton comes in uh who is much faster than league average does that create this kind of uh contrast in between what you're seeing as a hitter versus those other two guys
1: that you've seen i'm i'm absolutely certain of that 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 has to be the most jarring thing where you know you get a guy like david price so david price i think is one of the slowest pitchers in between pitches. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also a huge diva, and I don't really like him all that much, even though I'm a huge Red Sox fan. Um, but uh, he, he's notorious for taking, like, 30 seconds between pitches. So, you know, you get a batter up there, and he's used to, you know, like, oh, it's easy, go with the flow, you know, whatever. But then you get Porcello, who comes up, and he's one of the more efficient pitchers in the league right mm-hmm. now um that must be you know you shave 10 seconds off between t- i mean 10 seconds is a long time for a batter you mentally know? yeah yeah it, it's it's you know it, i'm sure it's jarring for someone to stand up there having a ball thrown 95 to 100 miles an hour at them you know and you shave off 10 seconds between that happening that's that's got to be maddening
0: is the next step of the research then looking at what uh? What game in the series that that all of these no hitters were, were found?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it would be interesting to see you know matchups for mm-hmm. you know the rest of the the season. Um, I did, I did, I do have a list of, of some pitchers. That yeah, you think you've uh, got some guys, including uh, think <laughs> including Luis Severino, who
0: I had heard his name. Shout out, uh, Alec. At Alex uh, Akita, for um, and he's a he's a sports blogger in Seattle, had predicted right after Paxton threw his that mm. Luis Severino would be would be a guy that um, that is a candidate for this. You had Severino pegged as well. Uh, who are your guys that are that are likely to throw a no hitter again?
1: Yeah, so I, I think um, what I was looking for was a pitcher who he ranks high in terms of his pace, but he may not be on a team that ranks as high. So I looked. I, I only looked at teams that ranked between twentieth and thirtieth, so twentieth to last, in terms of pace, um, and then I tried to look at individuals who were on those specific teams in the top fifty.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I found five. Uh, so uh, Dallas Keuchel, Jose Barrios, Luis Severino, Charlie Morton, and Rick Porcello. Um, so, for uh, Kygo and Morton are on the same team, so they're both on the Astros. Mm-hmm. So, Kygo was 47th, Morton was 46th. Dallas, his strike percentage has been plummeting over the past few years, so I don't think that he's a candidate. I think he's going to throw more pitches, that's going to wear him out. I think Badgers are going to get used to him, so sure. I can't see him doing it. Um, Barrios was 50th uh, on that list, um, so he barely made it. His strike percentage is also uh, going down, and it, it you, know, you can see the numbers this year aren't that great. Um, Severino was 15th, so he's a very efficient pitcher, um, but he only threw his first complete game this year, um, and I think that it would be, you know, it, I would feel more comfortable predicting, you know, someone who might have a little more experience going deep in games. Um, Charlie Morton was interesting. He was 46th. Um, He has the highest strike percentage of the five that I I mentioned, um, but he hasn't thrown a complete game since 2012. Um, So I think it's been a while, and again, like someone with a little more experience. Um, So, my highest pick to throw a no hitter, um, and I actually went to high school with this guy, um, Rick Porcello is 27th. Um, He's thrown five complete games in the past two years, and each year, uh, you know, over the past three, his strike percentage has been increasing. Um, So I think he's got a pretty good chance. Uh, Right now the Red Sox are, I think, like 28th or 29th in terms of pace, and Mm -hmm. I think David Price has a huge uh, reason for that. Um, But it's really, uh, you know, I'm going to take credit if any of those five guys get it, but I think Porcello would be... uh, Porcello would be my choice for the next one.
0: Yeah, that's, it. that's a good list, and it makes perfect sense that it's, it's kind of this, uh, this three-way factor of, of your pace relative to – and your pace independently is important, but your pace relative to your team's pace, uh, your your endurance to go late in games, and then also your efficiency with strikes um, because those two things go hand in hand. If you're efficient with your strikes, you're more likely to, to throw less pitches and therefore uh, extend into games. So Rick Porcello is the name you want to watch uh, for, for no-hitter alert um, that would be so So, Colin is currently in the process of job hunting right now <laughs> I think the, the number one thing that, that could happen for, for your job prospects is, is this getting published yeah, very true. Uh, putting a <laughs> definite time stamp on it and then Porcello <laughs> crushing it so uh, we'll root for that uh, moving on to another baseball phenomena here and this is more team oriented um, is the idea of of Mr. Moneyball himself Billy Bean who has been the uh, in the A's front office since 1998 And I guess the premise here is why does Billy Bean still have a job even though the A's are not a contender or seemingly looking like contenders for the next few years and really haven't been um, major contenders to win to win win the World Series since the early 2000s. Lay stab at this one. The A's are great, and this is not this is not super groundbreaking, but you're going to kind of delve into it more. The A's are are. Are in a good position as an organization in spite of having a low payroll over the last twenty years, while other teams have been have been varying from that, whether it's better or worse, uh, with with much higher payrolls. So the ability to to kind of um, know exactly what your product is and do it on budget um, has allowed Billy Bean to be a perfect uh, a perfect soldier for any owner looking to to just turn it a good business
1: yeah yeah and I think uh uh, two other guys I'm gonna mention here are Sandy Alderson and uh uh Theo Epstein um but it's crazy I mean before I looked into it I didn't realize how good the A's have been over the past 20 years except for you know obviously that you know the money ball season um but Billy Bean's been GM uh, was the GM of the A's from 98 to 2016 they never won a World Series, um, and you would think that he should have been fired by then based on, you know, if, if, if he was the GM of, like, the Yankees or the Red Sox, he probably would have been fired at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was actually promoted. He's the executive VP of operations now. Um, but what's interesting is, um, uh, you know, 1988 to 1990, the A's reached the World Series every one of those years, and in 91, they had the highest payroll. So it's not like, you know, the idea of the A's being this spendthrift you know organization who finds values in you know undervalued players um you know that's not how they used to be they used to spend a lot of money um and what's funny is at the time sandy alderson was one of the executives uh in those early a's teams and he was actually a a mentor to billy bean and and taught him how to find value in these um uh in these players um their, their owner haas died in the mid 90s and and uh you know the new guy that came in kind of wanted to cut cut budget so that's why they they've turned into this organization now that you know doesn't have a high budget but tries to find value so um but what's interesting is guys like alderson who's now the gm of the mets he's been the gm since 2011 um the mets have kind of you know Subverted expectations, like they've they've done better than people think they, they should have, mm-hmm. um, and under the radar, Alderson has reduced the payroll under a hundred million. Um, this year, they're not under that threshold, but from twenty twelve to twenty fourteen, they went under a hundred million, and then in twenty fifteen, they won the NL pennant. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, it's And this crazy. is this is a
0: team that had had racked up an incredible amount of salary from the the, the Santana days and the yeah. days of of just ch- chasing wins as much as they yeah, could get money.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the Bobby Bonilla day is famous because right. he's been retired for so long, but they still owe him money every right. year for the next like twenty years. <laughs> so, you know, this is an organization that historically hasn't spent their money well. Um, but then you get you know Alderson comes in and hires guys like. You know harvey and Syndergaard and you know de and mats and and he signs david right to an extension and that might not have paid off in terms of pure stats but you've intangible value so um but what was really interesting was when i looked at you know wins over the past few seasons what i wanted to do is i wanted to compare other teams that brought in these like-minded people um so like the billy bean mentality the sabermetrics guys so what i found was uh for the cubs um so they won the world series in 2016 um if i start at 2010 uh their wins every year from 2010 75 71 61 66 73 97 in 2015 and then 103 in 2016 so there's that huge jump of of 24 games 20 they added 24 wins in one year Mm -hmm. um uh i'm gonna get to the the phillies in a second but um if i look at the a's uh, over that same time period you know it goes like 76 75 75 81 74 up to 94 96 88 um so it, it seems like what these guys do is you know you'd think in terms of rebuilding it would be a gradual rise but but what they seem to do is there are these huge jumps. Like you are adding 20 wins onto your team from doing very little with your payroll. Mm. You know, I I am, I'm probably forgetting some, you know, huge moves, but you know, I think the Cubs might've added Chapman that year. Um, maybe Lester. Um, but those aren't guys who are going to add 20 wins, 24 wins alone. Um, so it's crazy. Like the value, you know, the Cubs added Ben Zobrist, like guys like that, are, are the ones who, you know, contribute the most to those wins. Um, so I think that, you know, with this with this whole, like, idea of thinking, like, sabermetrics, you know, um, you you shouldn't expect your guys over, like, the course of five years to, you know, you go, like, 60 wins, 65, 70, 75, 80. Like, the guys who are the most successful are the ones that make those huge mm. jumps, you know, and they, they, they also need to be able to build a team that can last, into the postseason. Yep,
0: yeah. even even thinking too right now about the, uh, the you know ba- baseball's prohibitive favorite and and most talented team is the Houston Astros, mm-hmm. um, and that organization went from so went from seventy six wins in two thousand ten. Down to 56 to 50 was winning less than 60 games for three straight years. Then from 51 to 70, 70 to 86, kind of were in the mid 80s for two years, and then 84 to 101 last year. So mm-hmm. those are those are three jumps of uh, of more than 15 wins in just just three years. So so this uh, so it's kind of that, that idea of a gradual increase, um, but not at all because they went all the way to the bottom, and that talent acquisition allowed them um, to do to to make those giant leaps. As those players themselves were making giant leaps of, the, of their progression.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, going back to the, the conversation we had before about building your team, like how, what's the most efficient way to build a team? And I remember that the Astros a few years ago, you know, the, the, the way that the GM built that team, it almost seemed like we're going to put a lineup of nine guys out there who hit a ton of home runs, but also strike out a lot. So we're just hoping to score as many runs as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't seem like there was much around the pitching, and you know, obviously it worked out really well for them with the pitching. They had some really good guys last year, and they added Verlander, which is terrifying. Yeah. Um. So, you know, it's really interesting that they they took kind of took a different route, um, but it all went back to pitching again. So
0: yeah, it's it is a f- uh, talking more about about. Beans because beans strategy hasn't been necessary to to bottom out because that's not within the business model because bottoming out would it would would reflect a record that is exactly in line with what the payroll is Mm -hmm. um so you never want to do that you want to stay above that um and kind of in this wheelhouse and hope for those blips that'll get you get you higher um so for bean it's kind of like running just a like a three-star restaurant on yelp just like you're profitable you have a you have good margins on everything um but the output isn't necessarily this 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 tremendous um exquisite meal Mm -hmm. it's just it's sustenance and it comes through and, and and from an organizational like ownership strategy, it's it's fantastic. From a fan's perspective, might be horribly disinteresting, and yeah. that that kind of it seems to be uh, that's kind of sports. Like like it, there's this business going on in the back, and then there's this disconnect between what that business is and the output um, that that people watch.
1: Yeah, and it, it's funny to me that you know one of the guys who seems to be the most business minded, and and you think you know you hear of an owner who wants to cut payroll below a certain amount where other teams aren't even close to that and you know he says we need to get under this number and you think oh that guy's so disconnected from baseball that guy has never played a game in his life he's just a businessman but it's exactly what guys like Derek Jeter are doing like mm-hmm. it's just you know it's a it's a company it's a you know they have to make revenue and right. you know have to make choices but there are you know guys like Bean and Epstein and Alderson have shown that you can derive value. You know it, it. does work. You know it's just that sample size again.
0: Yeah, uh, business and sports is, is um, always interesting and always always leads to to um, to more thought than just what you see in, in nine innings in a given game. Uh, last few things we'll kind of run through a little bit quicker because there uh, there seems to be less. Um, uh, less uh like just data for the for these ones uh the fourth one is is the idea of the boston marathon which is um a, a concept that's unique i mean obviously the boston marathon happens in boston marathons happen everywhere mm-hmm. uh but the boston marathon because it is it is it has this kind of canonical history of of years and years of data you can look at uh, at kind of the the different factors and going into who wins over time this year it was a disgusting day in boston it was mm-hmm. it was pr- to- pouring rain uh it's 40 degrees outside probably like i mean i'm never gonna run ever but this would uh, this would give me the absolute perfect day to not run um but this year the i think the my explanation for this is the weird weather at this year's boston marathon led to a an uncharacteristic boat race of, of a victory uh and then the question becomes is that a good race what what makes a good race are we looking for uh that type of thing where someone comes out in in these weird conditions and does something incredible like winning the Boston Marathon uh despite a below average time and and kind of dumping the rest of her um her competitors or are we looking for a very close Mm wire-to-wire finish
1: that photo finish yeah which is not what you got this year so you know uh I looked at uh, results from back since 2013 um, and you know the temperature at the start time and then how the temperature changed over time and then uh, what the first place finishers time was versus second place Um, so the spread in 2013 was five seconds so that's they know that's a short amount of time like that's photo finish like you are emptying the tank Um, 2014 11 seconds still pretty short amount of time there's probably like the last Point two miles. Somebody broke ahead. Twenty fifteen, it was thirty seconds, um, which is pretty wide, you know. But the start, t- this uh, temperature at the start time was forty six, so it was a little colder. Uh, twenty sixteen, it was forty five seconds. Um, start time temperature was seventy one, but it dropped ten degrees in the race, so that might be why you know people got a little. uh like hard for frame, a body to activate. Like that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, twenty seventeen, it was twenty seconds again, so still a good race this year the spread between one and two was two and a half minutes which is ridiculous for a race Mm -hmm.
0: and so so identical starting temperatures of 43 degrees between this year and last year uh the temperature dropped the same amount from from race start to race finish Mm -hmm. um the giant difference was it was it poured this year and it didn't last year yeah
1: so each of those years that i mentioned it did not rain except for 2018 um and uh so just out of you know just for history, um, the fastest marathon Boston Marathon ever was in 2011. The finish was 2 hours and 3 minutes. This year, the finish was 2 hours and 15 minutes, which doesn't sound like a huge difference for you know casual runner, but that is a huge... Like, that is ridiculous. Like, you know, those other years that I mentioned, the slowest time, um, other than the 2 hours 15, was 2 hours 12. All the other ones were 2.10 or lower. So... Um, this was a slow race. Um, rain definitely contributed to it, um, a lot. Um, one of the things that I, kind of wanted to touch on here was just in terms of the model building, just some advice, um, rain had such a huge effect. And usually when you have a variable that has a huge effect, um, you want to include something called an interaction term. Um, so if you have a variable like temperature and you have a variable like rain, Um, One thing you might want to do is if you build a model, you say, you know, Y equals X1 plus X2 plus X3. What you would do is you would say, you know, my outcome equals temperature plus rain indicator plus how much did my temperature vary based on whether it rained or not. Hmm. So basically it's the interaction between two variables. So um, when one variable has such a huge effect, that two-and-a-half-minute effect, um, interaction terms help to explain that a little bit better. Um, so that that was really interesting. Two and a half minutes is just absurd.
0: This makes me want to talk about something that that came across on a Malcolm Gladwell podcast the <laughs> other day. Um, he was talking about how. The idea, uh, and God, this could be a huge rabbit hole, so I'm going to go carefully into this. He was talking about the idea of, of how rooting, rooting for an underdog is, is somewhat criminal um, and that, that we should root for favorites because the, the, um, the situations in which underdogs win are, are, are generally fluky and don't necessarily represent the sport as a whole. The example he used was from a a Olympics long pass where a, a an incredibly gifted long jumper lost to basically a nobody within the sport because of because of rain. Um, to me, that is a horrible explanation because that 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 is that's not how it usually happens. Mm-hmm. At least now, that mm-hmm. um, that teams are are within within a couple simulations away from from beating each other all the time, so we're talking about team sports, individual sports, probably <laughs> similarly, in that that there there are many many capable runners who 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 win these types of things. Um, but that variable applies to everybody. Mm-hmm. right? So so if we're t- if we're talking about why one person won versus someone else, it's not because it rained on someone's shoes and it didn't rain on someone else's shoes um so is this something that you can just kind of apply this this blanket that just moves everything down um to explain something like this you would think so but then where does this two and a half minute spread between one and two come from Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i think the best piece of advice i ever got from a coach was you can't pick the conditions on race day um so it's better to train in any and all conditions so you know i I did sports in college and you know, whenever it was kind of nasty out, snowing, raining, I actually purposely went out there, but just in case on race day, uh, it was raining heavily and it did rain heavily for some races. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the more statistical answer, um, for anyone who's very technically minded is it's called um, a mixed effect model. And essentially what you do is you, you know, each person, those variables affect them in different ways. So, rain might reduce a person's time by one person's time by 10 seconds and it might reduce another person's time by two minutes Mm -hmm. um and basically what you do is you basically just build a model it's almost like building a model for every single individual um and you have this this floating term of how much does this affect this person so some things might actually help people um like if it's warmer out one person might say i run better when it's warm Um, but another person might say oh I can't run when it's warm I only run when it's cold Um, and it really like ties into the fact that runners are very much creatures of habit I I ran a lot in college and a little after and I did a lot of races and and, you know luckily I trained in a lot of different environments but a lot of the people that I met you know you'd go to you know I did one race in DC where it was uncharacteristically cold and it snowed that day and a lot of the people actually dropped out because they didn't want to hurt themselves which is actually very smart Um, but you know uh, runners are definitely creatures of habits. There are a lot of other athletes who are creatures of habits. And if conditions are not absolutely perfect, then, you know, you will suffer. And, you know, the odds of conditions being perfect on that one specific day are very low. So it's better to train in all different environments.
0: So I I looked at the, the mixed effects model and came across this article about some guys in baseball from a couple years ago who are trying to, to implement a stat uh, known as DRA, which is... Uh, can't find the acronym right now, but the idea is that you're you're taking in all of these factors into pitching mm-hmm. uh, to create kind of a a regardless of you know the the swings the swing pr- probability from a batter if you're if you're pitching against a batter who uh, is is a free swinger versus someone who keeps the bat on their shoulders uh, for temperature for all these different things you're trying to account for all those things mm-hmm. um, which is kind of this this unicorn metric that that it would be it seems like incredibly idealistic and, and might be just the, the it's it's up against this kind of soft barrier of it can never be perfect but it's the best thing we have type mm-hmm. thing um so very cool to know that that uh the applications for that go and the, the, the mix mix effects has has applications that go well beyond sports mm-hmm. as do all of the things that we talk about here um but yeah very very cool stuff going on there have you, have you heard of DRA? I baseball? haven't,
1: but I'm sure Craig Kimbrell sucks. So, <laughs> so uh,
0: there we go. I'm gonna I'm gonna Facebook message you DRA, and it sounds like we okay. have we have a we have a, uh, uh, a topic for for next time. Yeah. Our our last one here is this idea of, of injuries in 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 sports. Um, this one I think you you left a little bit barren on the on the Google Doc, and so I'm I'm glad you did because this one is such an ambiguous thing and could go so many different directions. Uh, from my Personal role and knowing knowing a lot about kind of the the mixed um, coverage of athletic trainers and reporting and um, you know kind of all these different things that can play into high school statistics or high the, the statistics that, that show you instance rates of high school injuries um, and also the lack of a body awareness that that high school athletes have uh, and b. The lack of medical coverage that they have it is not surprising to me that that we see the note here that there are much more catastrophic injuries in high school sports than there are in in sports as you go up because frankly there's not as much money in high school sports Mm -hmm. to pay for the types of people injury prevention and injury injury um you know attendance right after it right after an injury happens um so that makes sense but where did you want to go with with injuries in sports
1: yeah i think the interesting uh, stat for me, you know, when I saw that there were much more, you know, not having as, as you know, much of a background as you, I, when I saw that there were, you know, more catastrophic injuries in high school versus college, you know, I, that's something that not, not something that I would have thought of intuitively. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I really wanted to do was you, you hear a lot, you know, concussions is the big topic of conversation around sports specifically football and sometimes hockey and sure. you know there's all these arguments about oh well you know if you just focus on proper form for tackling you know that will solve the problem or you know oh we need to improve the technology you know um, I think what is interesting that I found was I wanted to compare the most popular injuries um, uh, in four sports high school versus major leagues mm-hmm. um, oh I see so so Uh, you know, and and, and see if, you know, if there's something some information that we can infer from from looking at it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I look at baseball, you know, in high school uh, the most common injury are, are facial fractures. Makes um, perfect sense. Yeah,
0: like there's just there's just wilder balls getting thrown, whether it's from you know from the mound to, to home plate or from you know just just at first base. You have yeah. less skill to be able to handle those types. Yeah, of
1: things. And, and you know it, the easy fix, especially for high school, is you know you wear a cage something like that over mm-hmm. your face, and, and then you know so when you get to the major leagues and you develop your control, you know and that doesn't happen as frequently. Um, so the most popular uh, injury in MLB. Now, for pitchers, at least, is rotator cuff injuries, um, and that's from overuse. Um, and there are surgeries to, you know, to prevent that. But you know, incredible
0: that's, amount of torque on those. Shoulders. Yeah, yeah, I mean,
1: you're you're throwing a ball like for someone like Chapman. You know, it, it's it's amazing that his shoulder's still attached to his body. Like he's throwing it 103 miles an hour mm-hmm. every, you know, almost every night. Like it's it's crazy. I can't even imagine if you were to take an MRI like five years ago versus now, the amount of damage in his shoulder is probably. Monumental, So, you know, that one kind of made sense. Um, with basketball, um, high school, it was ankle injuries. And in the NBA, it's also ankle injuries. Yep. So, you know, all the cutting that you do and you roll an ankle, something like that, you know, that, that also makes sense. You know, it's, it's just you put a lot of wear and tear in your body over time. Um, and again all the cutting that you do you know you're bound to, to roll something you know they have special shoes for it you know the basketball shoes are a little higher yep. uh, up on the ankle yeah it's 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 protection largely
0: yeah. the same sport i mean in terms of the schematics of the game are much different from from high school basketball mm-hmm. to to the nba but the sport that's that's being played the the running the jumping the contact is all pretty Linear as you go up in in, in yeah. skill level.
1: Yeah, yeah, not much, not much changes. Um, and, and with baseball, you know, the biggest difference I would say is you know using an aluminum bat versus a wooden bat. So that's probably where the, the facial injuries go away is True. you know, ball jumps off an aluminum bat and it's like dynamite. So yeah. Um, the interesting thing was uh, for hockey and football, um, the high school injuries are concussions, um, and they both grow exponentially when you get to the NFL and the NHL. Still, concussions for both those organizations, which isn't that surprising. Um, what I agree with
0: you, but wh- why? Why to you was it not surprising?
1: Well, I mean, just because of like, the coverage that you hear, you know, there's the, everyone talks about the concussion mm-hmm. issue and CTE and. and so, so you're
0: not your you're not football. surprised to, to hear this this as as the you're not surprised to see this this statistical thing occur. No. Okay. No. I, I think it's not surprising to me thinking about, especially the exponential increase of, you start with a game that that in both cases has hitting at its core, what and it's hitting into a a, a surface or a and another person that's going to create that that impact, um, that happens. On a harder surface in hockey, obviously, with the ice and the boards um, and a softer surface in football, but with more inherent collisions between people that happen on every play. That makes sense. So the force equals, you know, the, 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 this mass and acceleration on every play in both sports inher- inherently. In football and in, and in hockey, once you increase that mass and that mm-hmm. acceleration, you have bigger athletes – you have faster athletes and, and more, more skilled athletes able to, to control their bodies more. You have these, these higher forces, higher impacts. Um, so that makes total sense to me of, of you know, you think about – uh, the, the relative force is very similar however the and, and kind of the the impact on a body but the, the amount of, of speed that you're injecting mm-hmm. into the equation when you look at you know a, a linebacker capable of, of you know a, a four five40 yard dash at 240 pounds going directly into a, into a, a, a receiver going over the middle I mean that, that is a tremendous amount of force over the over that impact which force is what's going to create a force on the, on the, on the skull and therefore on the brain to cause a concussion. So I think that, that, that is something that, that makes sense from a, from a physics perspective as well.
1: Yeah. It's, it's purely a matter And you know, I think the interesting thing was, um, the increase in injuries from high school to NFL, uh, was linear. Um, so it was a pretty steady trend upward, but for hockey it was exponential. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, obviously people get bigger from high school to, you know, the pros, Um, you know the mass increases but you know the speed at which you skate it can yeah. be a lot faster than the speed in which you run. Right. Um, and I think that's why that exponential growth happens in hockey versus football.
0: Exactly. And I think that, that it plays out over just based off of the, the nature of the game. Like we said in football, that's in every play, mm-hmm. someone gets tackled for the yeah. most part in this, you know, going out of bounds. And even if someone doesn't get tackled, there are still plenty of collisions. Um, listening to DeAndre Levy, Levy who was a, a linebacker for the Lions, um, he, talking uh, in front of a, a congressional panel earlier this year, Levy was talking about. The idea of even though... So he's the linebacker, and just to make the play on the running back, he has to f- go full speed into a, into a fullback, uh, stun him, get off that block, and then make the play, if he were to even get there. So what might not even register as a tackle or him being in the finality of that play still involved a very high-speed impact. That doesn't go away in youth football, high school football, pro football. What changes in hockey to me... Is First of all, checking isn't allowed at the same level that it is in in the NHL as it is in in youth hockey. So you're going to have no no checking of someone deliberately going against them into the boards. Um, If someone falls and has a concussion in youth hockey, most likely it's on the ice. Uh, As you go up in age, that goes away. And now you have these bigger, faster athletes intentionally colliding against the boards so you're injecting this whole new type of 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 hit, whole new type of injury, mm-hmm. this this head to board uh, injury once you get higher and higher in in hockey and w- coupled with increasing force. So, I mean, that that to me is where that exp- or that that exponential factor might come from.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think it 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 leans more towards a cry for rule changes or technology change over players need to learn how to hit Mm -hmm. you know it's you know uh, it's something that the nfl you know deep down i hope that the nfl really wants to solve the problem correctly but like we've been saying you know these are all businesses and if the nfl were to change rules or you know drastically change the game that could hurt their revenue um and which is why they are hesitant to make these drastic changes yeah um,
0: the this the second they acknowledge that there is a flaw, in the game, it tampers every single thing that they do from a from a business perspective. Because if if, if there's a flaw in this game, why would Coca Cola? Mm-hmm. Want to or Budweiser want to align them hitch, hitch themselves on our wagon? Yep. Why? I mean, if there's another sport that's going to go and make more money, Budweiser will go there. Yep. Um. So so that dictates every single operation that that the that the not just the NFL but any professional big time sports league is going to make.
1: Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's 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 funny. It's like it kind of is like the steroid scandal in baseball in like the 2000s. Mm-hmm. You know, with know to a certain extent one being way more you know harmful to the athletes than the other um but you know with the steroid thing bud Selig made a big deal about it and you know um i'm blanking on the name of the commissioner of the nfl Uh, oh roger goodell roger goodell didn't make as big of a deal about it in the nfl um and now he's got like this big thing that he has to confront now Mm -hmm. You know, it's 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 an interesting and
0: word. and it's much easier for for uh, for C in that period of time to admit or to to have a role in stopping it because it's an external uh, threat to the game. Mm-hmm. It's it's drugs coming into the it game. Is. With football, it's an internal threat. It's it's the nature of the game that that could be its most yeah. most lethal. You know, thing thing that could undo it is coming from the sport itself, which, yeah. which makes confronting that. A much more difficult proposition for Roger Goodell than it would be for uh, even for for David Stern talking about when uh, when Tim Donahue got busted for uh, referees gambling and, and having that input on the game that that is an external threat. That's that's money coming in. That's you know, that's a, that's a rogue referee. There's all these other things, but it's not like the sport of basketball. It's not like every time you dribble a basketball there's actually a thorn in that ball that could get stuck in your hand. Yeah. Um, it's there's just there's a different set of problems there.
1: Yeah, and I think the ironic thing is that you know, the, the article that came out a few months ago that said that even if you get hit and it doesn't cause a concussion, it still has a pro uh, it causes an issue in your mm-hmm. brain. Um, the ironic thing is that if he had cracked down on steroids, you know decreases the mass of the player maybe that decreases the impact of the hit mm-hmm. um, so those hits don't Become as harmful as guys. So you
0: were you were saying Goodell addressing steroids in, in football versus C addressing steroids in football or in, in baseball. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think just in terms of like how it kind of you know is like a snowball effect. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's just ironic that you know that kind of contributes to the problem. Yeah, you know,
0: yeah, for sure. Uh, just to close out, you're talking about the idea of subconcussive hits. The other or the other day, I saw an, an article published that um, amongst I think it was college lacrosse players before and after hit. Um, just to their head doesn't produce symptoms. Uh, it was the idea of, of their balance being affected, just to, to slight degrees that were that were noticeable and and, and measurable. Uh, just as a result of that hit, uh, the accumulation of those hits is what causes um, the the idea of or not the idea of the disease, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that is is the the disease that shows up over time as a result of of hundreds and hundreds of those types of hits per season so uh it is it is fascinating and not necessarily the direction i thought you were going to go with that but i'm glad we did because that's obviously a topic that uh is very near and dear to Mm -hmm. to my heart um this was awesome. Again, I think that that your your ability to constantly be thinking about these things provides me with a lot to talk about when uh, when we get a chance to, to to break them down. So thank you so much uh, for for having the mind that you do, where you just can't help yourself but think I about can't these types. I'm to. too much of a geek. <laughs> uh, what, what was the first time you remember, were you like doing uh, like? I, I remember having like fantasy video game leagues like that type of thing as a kid that but not to this level where i was thinking do you have any seminal moments as a kid that you're thinking about about stats in a weird way
1: yeah i uh senior year of high school when i was learning calc i decided and this is still an idea that i want to do but um you can use calculus to Uh, figure out if pitcher's arms are wearing down Mm -hmm. Um, and you you do like a a rate of change calculation basically you combine that with physics um, and and the stats that you collect on their um, like the biomechanics of their arm movements Um, and I just I thought about like you know if you could track a pitcher throwing a ball and the angle that they release and the speeds over time and and all that you could figure out like oh this pitcher you know his angle's changing very very slightly so he's it's fatigue and he has to exercise these muscles and things like that um i think learning calc in mr bolin's summer summer school too it was summer calc class hmm. i think that's when it like started the click where I was like this is really cool
0: yeah I was just filling up uh, filling up cylinders in my cal class just, yeah. just not nothing no application <laughs> yeah, that, that made me, that too that was what that was actually what I, I I like I like math and love teaching math and came back to math as a result of of uh, of becoming a teacher mm-hmm. um, and through the four years that I'd gone from from math class in high school to to college, had forgotten how much I loved solving problems and, and coming on top of of solutions like that, um, and and it's it's just this it's very tiny but it's it is a very tangible feeling that you get when when you saw something like that oh yeah um and so i I definitely missed that that i and, and got it back a little bit as teaching and then um you know having some more time to think about think about uh sports analysis like this get a little bit more of it but not as much as, as you certainly get <laughs> um all right that was a long that was a long goodbye we gotta get out of here uh thank you so much for for doing mm, this thanks for having me again. all right let's do it again in june yeah absolutely sounds good